cybersecurity now gets an immense amount of attention. It hasn't always been this way, but there were people who were thinking about this 20 or even 30 years ago. I'm Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President and Director of the Technology Policy Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This podcast, Cyber from the Start, goes to the roots of cybersecurity. It looks at how we develop the policies we have for critical infrastructure, surveillance, espionage, warfare, and privacy. Looking at this and talking to the people who helped lay the foundations will help us see where we started and how we ended up where we are today. Joe Men, a journalist in San Francisco, has been covering hacking for about three decades. He was a target of opportunity when his book, Cult of the Dead Cow, came out. And so we grabbed him to talk about hackers, the freaking community, and the dawn of time when it comes to cybersecurity. Thanks for doing this. How did you get into cybersecurity? What made you start reporting it? Oh boy. Uh, Let's see. Well, I started covering technology in 1999 for the Los Angeles Times in San Francisco. And um, fairly fairly quickly I moved into security because it was just the most interesting part of it. you know, there's nobody with an incentive really to tell you how bad things were. You know, Microsoft and other companies that wanted you to buy things had no reason to tell you that they weren't safe. Um, and the security companies didn't want you to worry that much or look too deeply into it. You know, if you want to buy a subscription to our AV, that's great. But they didn't really want to go into like the economics and, and the sort of the, the deeper truths of how hopeless it all was. I just found that interesting. So, I mean, there was it left it sort of a green field for enterprising mm-hmm. reporter types to to really dig into it. What was your first story? Do you remember? Oh boy, I think it was just things going wrong at eBay, which happened a lot. There was just a crash. There was mm-hmm. a series of crashes, and mm-hmm. at the time, that was quite a big deal. Um, there were also denial of service attacks on Yahoo around the same time. So, I think it was around when sort of the fallibility of of, of basic tech. Um, began to uh, be more in the public consciousness. What was your favorite story so far? Ooh, favorite one so yeah, far. Yeah, I should have warned you in advance. Oh, yeah. boy. Um, I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole genesis of, of my last book, Fatal System Error, was pretty great. The surface story is a guy who got hired to protect uh, offshore gambling sites from denial of service extortion attacks, which were, which were a big thing. But the fact that, that he, this guy managed to infiltrate the Russian mob, which is what it turned out to be, you know, who were the guys who were attacking, uh, while accidentally, without realizing that he was working for the American mob, who were the ones <laughs> running the gambling sites, was, was pretty amazing. Uh-huh. I mean, that was like sort of a great way to try and explain this terrible world to, to new people. How did the companies react when you published this stuff? Uh, were they thrilled with joy? Which companies? Any company. Well, there's two sets of companies. There's the companies like eBay or some of the big software providers. And then there's some of the dodgier people you worked with. But let's do the the companies first. Well, it, it depends. It depends a lot, actually. Um, so eBay was actually pretty open about what was happening and why it was actually hard to defend. Um yeah, perfectly. And and that was um you know, I've usually found that the the technical people if you can get to them are, are you know, or as long as you're you're upfront and 
um, not a complete idiot and, and willing to put in some, some work, they're happy to educate. And, and um, they're fine. It only gets twisted when sort of like the lawyers and the PR people um, <laughs> and sometimes the financial folks get involved and then they want to sort of suppress everything. So I mean, certainly over the last 20 years of covering this, there have been plenty of companies that mm-hmm. um, have slammed the door in my face, uh, or hung up the phone and, and, and um, or dissembled. Um, uh, downplaying flaws, the severity of flaws is common. You know how bad how bad a breach is that sort of thing. That's totally common. But um, in generally, you know, the security companies, if they're doing something good, are happy to talk about it. And sometimes the and sometimes the victims can be pretty candid. One thing that helped a lot with that was was when Google in 2010 said said that they got hacked pretty badly by the Chinese. Nobody thought that Google, that Google is a bunch of idiots. Mm-hmm. So I think the stigma has really you know been, been That's reduced by that. So you think that a lot of the opposition in the beginning was the stigma of being hacked as much as the financial considerations? Yeah, I do. I think now there are more there there are different there are different concerns. There's more liabilities. Um, the fact that everybody hates tech in general the last three years, I think, has has made has has. Uh, this is, by the way, officially be mean to Facebook here. <laughs> Yeah, well, they had they had they had a pretty long honeymoon, I'd say. So, um, how about the other guys? A lot of times, people who do reporting on the mafia have uh, unusual experiences, uh, particularly the Russian mafia. They can be unfriendly. Did that affect you at all? Did that come into play? Um, so, I mean, I, I think first you have to like from some of the people I work with at Reuters, my in my day job, you know, are in. Some of them have been jailed. Some of them have uh, been killed. Um, you know, there we have a lot of people in war zones, um, and plenty working under totalitarian regimes. Um, so I'm very lucky and privileged to be able to, re- you know, report mm-hmm. about what I want from America, from the United States. Um, that said, um, there are plenty of stories now where I think about physical risk and cyber risk. Hmm. Um, you know, I went to Russia to work on. Fatal system error, and I did not plan to go back to Russia. And I did not confront everybody I wanted to mm-hmm. confront in person in Russia. I waited till I got back to the United States, and then I used Skype. <laughs> what was your best interview in all this? Ooh, best interview of like of twenty years of covering this stuff. Yeah, pick one. I mean, no one will know. I mean, <laughs> or break them into categories. I mean, um, some of my favorites. Let's because you started out really as an an intel reporter, right? No, 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 no tech no, reporter. No, oh. no uh, you know, I'd covered. Um, I mean, I'm like uh, old school. I started out covering cops in a southern town, um, and then I covered city hall in a southern town, and then. I covered Which Civil southern Court. town? Gastonia, North Carolina. Uh-huh. Uh, that's that oh, was where okay. I started covering night cops for the Charlotte <laughs> Observer outpost there, um, and then City Hall in Gastonia, and then uh, Civil Courts in downtown Charlotte. I made it to the show, as the people in the my colleagues in the bureau called it, when we got to go to the, the main Charlotte paper. Um, and then I went to, and I did, but I always did sort of investigative stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I um, you know, in Charlotte, I did. I found out that Michael Jordan had a had a gambling problem. Uh, uh, that was a pretty big story there. Um, and then I went to Bloomberg to do investigative stuff and learn business um, uh, because it's easier to it's easier to get a job doing investigative stuff if you have a specialty and and business. You know, not a lot of business reporters don't know how to investigate, and a lot of investigative guys don't know much. I don't know how to read a balance sheet. Uh, so I was at Bloomberg for a while, and um, 
uh, I did I did legal stuff and I covered the tobacco industry uh, and um, uh, did did a fair amount of legal reporting and then I moved out to San Francisco and uh, because I wanted to live in San Francisco and then I fell into tech. Why did you pick Cult of the Dead Cow, which uh, is probably not that well known before your book? Um, well, they used to be. They, really? they, Twenty years ago, they were famous. Okay, um, it's it's still. An I always thought they were a tattoo. <laughs> Um, so, Cult of the Dead Cow was perfect. So, what happened is Fatal System Error, um, the, the book with the guy that infiltrated both mobs, um, you know, was the first like really popular mainstream book to say, to say like we're really, really, really in bad trouble with cybersecurity. That combination of the architecture of the internet, um, the way the software ecosystem has developed without liability and with oligopoly power um, and geopolitics, you know, some governments that just you know, don't have a problem with their criminals attacking other countries meant that this is basically unfixable. So I spent a lot of time on that book and I was quite proud of it. And since then, there have been plenty of other books, uh, many of them quite good, talking about other aspects of the problem. Sure. But there hasn't been much at all that says, like, and here's something we should do about it, you know, mm -hmm. and certainly not in a, in a sort of accessible, enjoyable way. And so I wanted to do the same sort of thing, write, write a narrative about uh, characters that that people would be interested in, but that has kind of like a, you know, a bit of a, a hopeful and and you know idealistic point to it, and hopefully it would inspire others. So the cult. Of the, once I figured out that I wanted to do that, the cult of the gal, dead cow sort of leaped out at me because they span the whole history of the internet. They go back to the mid eighties. Um, they so you did research and looked at possible topics. I did. I mean, yeah, it is sort of a non sequitur to say a dead cow leaps at you, but <laughs> but you you trolled through the. So I so having covered, I knew some of the people that were in the group. Uh -huh. I'd known them because they are you know some of them are quite prominent security mm -hmm. people, um, and so. I like the fact that it went all the way back so you could you could sort of trace their moral development, starting with very low stakes, like, you know, how much long distance services can I should I steal really? Um how that was freaking. <laughs> yes. So they all started out freaking. Um or or mo the earliest Many of them, yeah. yeah. Um and then, you know, the stakes as you know, go all the way to the top and then DARPA and mass surveillance and, and, and cyber warfare. Um, so if you trace these people's evolution, then you it would really give you a sense of um, particularly younger people who are coming have gotten into the field since it became a clean field and have missed out on sort of like the the moral forge of making these judgment calls all the time. They can they can look at these guys and figure out which shoulders to stand on. You know, um, and, and I th I think that you know a lot has been lost. You know, as this has all been professionalized and com compartmentalized, and you know the the FBI doesn't. And then the crooks don't sit down together and, and like, you know, in pursuit of knowledge, which is really kind of the way it was back in the day. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it changed? Well, it had to grow up to some extent and, you know, it became big industry. It became very politicized. I mean, when I started covering this stuff, um, cybersecurity was, you know, 70, 80 percent of Silicon Valley story and mm -hmm. 20 or 30 percent of Washington story mm -hmm. in this country. And now it's completely flipped. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's really about the executive branch and uh, more than mm -hmm. anything. Um, you know, the agencies and DHS and, um, you know, the, I mean, I still think there's there's really good work being done in the private sector, but um, uh, it's not where the power is and it's not where the attention is. How geeky do you have to be to report on this stuff? Not that geeky. You just have to work hard. I mean, I, you know, I wrote about the law for a long time without a law degree and didn't script too badly. Um, I, the last program I wrote was freshman year in college. Um, 
Um, you just have to take it seriously and be willing to put in the time to learn it. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, that's frankly another reason I really I wanted to write this book was that there are there are a lot of, there are a lot of new reporters covering this stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm one of the few like holdovers, and some of them some of them can program program, mm -hmm. and a lot of them. Um, you know, they have sort of new areas of interest and new energy. And I'm like, well, what am I still bringing to the table? Mm -hmm. Well, I've got the institutional knowledge. I know I know what happened before mm -hmm. and I can try and distill that mm -hmm. so that, you know, some 25-year-old doesn't have to troll through 30 years of new Usenet, you know, postings. <laughs> uh, I, can, I can try and, you know, here, That's a really here, horrible thought. <laughs> <laughs> here are the highlights. Uh -huh. um, and people have been, been really psyched to, to get it this way. Hmm. You always seem to be... Uh, uh, this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but a little bit pro-hacker. I mean, is that a fair... Well, I mean... For, in the old style, dead cow type hacker. Yeah. No, so, one of the major points of this book is that is that there, you know, I think hackers have a general, have a better image than they used to. Mm -hmm. But um, there's still, there's still people, many people who say, well, hackers are, hackers are bad. Mm -hmm. And that is not true. Hackers are just like you and me, only generally smarter. Um, and some of them are terrible and some of them are great. But all of them, if you're a serious hacker, are, all of them are critical thinkers mm -hmm. because they're taking a machine and trying to figure out what else can it do that it's not supposed to do. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're looking for sideways into things. Um, and I think critical thinking is an incredibly important and undervalued skill. And particularly in the last few years where we have tens of millions of people believing complete falsehoods. Um, you know, what I would like is some sort of crash, you know, federal education program where, you know, um, epistemology professors are, you know, parachuted into school districts and teach kids how to evaluate sources. But I think we're unlikely to get that. Uh, a, fair, a fair bet. Yeah. <laughs> and so instead, perhaps, we can look to these people who have been doing critical thinking for a long time. Um, and in particularly the the folks in the cult of the dead cow, I admire because you know it's hard enough to try and get Microsoft to do better security, which mm. they did. But then they kept going, you know, upstream. Like, well, actually, it's a broader problem mm. with the way the so software is marketed and sold, and um, and and there are problems with the the government kind of being asleep at the switch because. You know, lobbies have convinced them that all innovation is good and therefore you don't need any regulation and so forth. These guys not only – these guys came up with like three completely different ways to make this stuff better. They they went into the private sector. They founded really innovative company, mm -hmm. uh, companies like Vericode and AtStake, which sent hackers into these – inside these companies to help them figure out what they were doing wrong. Mudge went in, wound up uh, running a cybersecurity grant making a DARPA, offense and defense, um, and and really, you know, behind the scenes telling the generals like what was plausible and what wasn't of all these, you know, claims that the, mm -hmm. you know, the greedy contractors wanted to, you know, convince them that they could mm -hmm. do. And then the whole hacktivism thing. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, nonprofits, um, you know, all these wonderful open source programs that these guys contributed to or sort of were sort of like frenemies with and helped spur along like Tor um, or, or, or nonprofits uh, and places like the Citizen Lab, um, you know, which does tremendous work tracking governments using misusing tech against their own citizens. So all these different things came from this group of 50 people lifetime, uh, 20 at any given time.
Surely you're not telling me that Ron Debert was a member of Cult of the Dead Cow. Ron, Ron Debert was not uh, the founder of Assistant Lab, was not um, a, a member of the Cult of the Dead Cow. However, oh, good. Huh. Um, he had somebody... Um, Ron, the, early- the Mounties will be coming to your door any minute now. But Ron had a star student um, named Nart Villanueva um, who was following the Hacktivismo spinoff of CDC um, and wound up introducing... Um, Ron to Oxblood Ruffin, who is the sort of the, the godfather of hacktivism. Um, and uh, while Ron was figuring out what to do um, at the University of Toronto, where he's a professor, um, Oxblood, they had long conversations and, and they really sort of jointly figured out how it would, that it would be super effective to have an academic um, institution with multiple disciplines it could draw on that would not be beholden to any government. Um, and, um, you know, so it helped him formulate, um, Oxblood helped him formulate, uh, you know, how the citizen lab should, should go about its business. And, um, Ron gave him credit in his book, uh, his own book, Black Code. It sounds like you have pretty strong views on how the internet evolved and maybe evolved in the wrong way. You were watching it from San Francisco, the other side of the coast. What are some of the things that I was here in DC? What are some of the things that led you to think about the, influence of business and the role of government? What, what were the things you saw from way out there? Well, so I, I'm probably biased in part because I started in 99, which was when it was just completely nuts during the, the dot-com boom. Um, and out of that grew my, my first tech book, which is about Napster. And Napster, I thought, was really interesting. Again, it was something that was very much in the public consciousness, and again, I could I could take the narrative of the, of the kids who started it because I could have them learn about Silicon Valley, and that wouldn't be so hard on the readers. I'm trying to teach them how venture capital works, but Napster was an amazing story because the tech was actually brilliant, and then um, it was you know, uh, and then it got corrupted by the grownups. Like you know, I don't fault a 19 year old for not knowing the ins and outs of copyright law, but the professionals who came in, the venture capital firm and the lawyers who thought they could win. They were the guys who who messed it all up. So it, it's terrific that venture money taught people what HTML was and and drove a lot of innovation, but it also totally corrupts it. Um, and what's interesting now, and in looking back twenty years ago, I mean, I wrote the Napster book in part as a cautionary tale. Like, my gosh, you know, I have the internal emails that show that that the guy at Kleiner Perkins thought that this was illegal, and they still wanted to invest. I mean, that's crazy. And now, it, you look at Uber and Airbnb and these other companies, no, they actually saw it as a model, you know, good, big enough, and then, you know, the, the lawmakers will come to you. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Is that a widely held view in California? I think it's getting to be more so. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, lots of people use Uber and they're grateful for the fact that venture capital pyramid-like things are subsidizing their rides so that they're cheaper than taxis. But I think people realize that there's a social cost and that a lot of this isn't sustainable. What's your next story on cybersecurity? What's the thing you're going to look at now that the book is out of the way? I wouldn't say it's out of the way. It's only been out a week. Um, well, but you're not, you're not, uh, you don't have to revise it anymore. No, but I do have to tell people it's out there. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, so then tell us about the book. So, um, so some of the news got out early because um, Beto, I mean, one of the, when I started writing the book, um, and I, I had a deal to write a book. I knew that there was a congressman. 
mm. but I didn't who had been in CDC, which I found amazing. Um, mm-hmm. But I didn't know which one, mm-hmm. and I didn't think he was going to talk to me. But I, I was certainly going to try. Mm-hmm. And when I and so I was starting to try and figure out who it was, and I saw these uh, stories fly by about somebody running for Senate in Texas um, who was around who play, had been in a punk band and um, and uh, Texas is where the group was started. It was actually started in Lubbock um, and the name comes from an abandoned slaughterhouse that they used to hang out in. Um, that's That was hence the, the dead cow thing. Um, and he was in this like this magic age. There was this magic period. If you came of age between 1983 when War Games came out mm-hmm. and every, every who saw it like wanted to would get a play, Would and, you like to play a nice game of chess? Hey, yeah. hey, do you want to play a game? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and 1986, when the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act made it clear that a lot of a lot of hacking was illegal. Mm. Uh, if you came of age during that magic window, um, <laughs> then you were much more likely to be a major participant. And That's there's funny. A, so anyway. The guy running for Senate was Beto O'Rourke, and he was in that demographic, mm. that sort of unique demographic. And so I ran it by the CDC guys that I knew and and had already been working with. And it says that this guy, and they said, we, we're not going to talk about it. I'm like, huh, so not denying it. And so I, I had a I had a strong hunch, um, but I didn't have enough I could write. Uh, and then I said, look, you know, look, the book isn't going to come out until mm-hmm. after the November election. He's either in, in the Senate, he's got six years to live it down. Or he's not in the Senate and he's out of politics. Do you think he had to live it down? Do you think it was something that uh, – Well, let's talk about that. Uh, but first of all, th- they agreed – First, they, most Americans don't know what Cult of the Dead Cow is. So they do now. They do now. But, <laughs> you know, it's hard to get excited. It's not like he was a member of La Cosa Nostra or something. Well, right. But if you if you came of age during this period, the way to connect to people was bulletin boards. <laughs> and if there wasn't a bulletin board you wanted in your area code, uh-huh. then you were running up $400 phone bills to connect to the one you wanted. Oh, so he committed so everybody crimes. stole oh, long distance I, that We should cut that part out where I said he committed crimes. No, he did commit crimes. He admitted to me that he committed crimes. He was a juvenile. Freaking as a crime. Absolutely. I guess it is. Yeah. Of course. You're stealing long distance service. Did he use a Captain Crunch whistle? He did not use a Captain Crunch whistle. Okay. Just curious. Um, so anyway, so I mean, I, I know I, people who did. I think I think it's you know in a way he is 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 actually kind of a, a perfect. So this is the first national politician to admit to hacking. Do you think people will know what we're talking about when we say Captain Crunch whistle? No. So you could <laughs> the um, long distance calls were cued by certain tones, and you could mimic the tones using a Captain Crunch whistle, and then basically tell the network to, and this was probably analog, I don't know, but in any case, you could tell the network yeah, that, to, you're disconnected. to authorize your authorize your long distance call. Basically, it's for the price of dropping a quarter or something. Yeah, it was, it was the frequency. Or a dime. It was the, the whistle was the right frequency to, yeah. to convince the, um, the phone company wrongly that you disconnected. And mm-hmm. then, then there's an open line and you can go anywhere you want. Um, cool. So yeah, it was it was cool. <laughs> um, oh, bad! So I, I think it was. Bad. I think, no, I think cool Beto was willing to mm. admit to this, in part because he'd already copped to being yeah. arrested for a DUI and, and worse things. Yeah. Um, also, you know, he, you know, his his badness was as a minor. Sure. Um, There's got to be a statute of limitations on this absolutely. stuff too. Absolutely. Yeah. There's. I mean, and and even and and I, other people in the group who did have police show up at their house, uh, none of them went to jail. I mean, sometimes their computers were taken away, mm-hmm. uh, but um, 
you know, it was, you know, no, you don't go to jail. You didn't go to jail. So, but it, well, when I did break the story after he ran for, he ran for, you know, fast forwarding a bit, he declared for president and the next day I reported for mm-hmm. Reuters the sort of the highlights of, of Beto's involvement. Mm-hmm. Senator Ted Cruz um, was all over him. Um, um, Sean Hannity was all over him, not just for stealing long distance service, mm-hmm. but for writing 15 year old boy boy stuff. Because in the beginning, it was text files. Mm-hmm. That's what these guys did. They ran bulletin boards. They wrote text files. And they were sort of like the liberal arts wing of the hacker underground. You know, um, they, they were, you know, they weren't adept criminals. Um, they actually admired to and were jealous of other groups like the Legion of Doom and Masters of Deception, uh, which is also in the early 90s. And so, they would they would write files that mocked those guys that pretended to be like super elite. Um, and But they were making fun of those guys that actually the they were jealous of. And that's actually one of the reasons they survived. The other hacking groups who all had their, their own bulletin boards, but as an adjunct to their criminal activity, were basically rounded up and arrested, uh, in, some, in some cases overly uh, aggressively. And this gave rise to the Electronic Frontier Foundation right around the same time, around, mm-hmm. uh, around 1991. But the, the, the cult of the dead cow survived. Another important thing they did early, they had the guy that started the first sort of modern hacking convention. It was a Christmas break thing that came to be known as HoHoCon. And it was the first one to invite the press and to invite the cops. The cops had gone to previous hacker gatherings undercover. Uh, but this one, they were openly invited. And among those who came to early HoHoCons were the guys in the loft. So this is where the serious technical minds start showing up. People yeah. like Mudge and uh, Dildog, whose real name is Chris Rue. And four people from the loft were also in the CDC. And the loft is this famous, uh, iconic Boston uh, 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 hacker space and people we who should, shared rent there. We should point out it's spelled oh, yes. L0FT. No, L0PHT. L0, I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> You're not leaving enough, Jim. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> uh, the loft in 1998 sent seven people to testify before Congress under pseudonyms, the sort of thing that only happens normally if you are a mafioso, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and testified that any one of them could bring down the internet in half an hour. Um, mm. Uh, what did that mean, though? Um, it's un- they have not disclosed exactly how they would yeah, have done it. That I, sounds like braggadocio. It may have been, but it, it had some impact. Um, BGP is pretty bad, though. You can do some yeah. really bad things with BGP still. The Dick Clark had uh, had I think greased the wheels to have them come testify because mm-hmm. he was trying to get a little more authority. He, he was the, the very first podcast. Yeah. Well, so. and he was the first cyber czar. And, yeah, that's uh, he, why. Yeah. He, he is a couple cameos in the book. So, what was interesting about the loft and the CDC is that they were they were sort of, while there's overlap, there was sort of good cop, bad cop. Mm-hmm. So, the loft guys pioneered uh, coordinated disclosure with the software companies. You know, they find a bug and rather than just announcing, they'll give the company a time, some time to fix it. And then when the patch comes out, they'll also explain what happened. And that is still what, the, that's the best practice today, which is, which is awesome. So, they, those guys did that. But if that didn't work... Then they had their unruly cousin from Texas, the CDC, that could that could really embarrass the heck out of them, which is what they did in um, 1998-99 with the release of Back Orifice and Back Orifice 2000, which were these Trojans that allowed script kiddies to take over Windows machines. That's an interesting moral call. It certainly meant that more machines got hacked. But the public embarrassment was about the only thing, uh, and the big customers paying attention and getting upset about it, were about the only things that forced Microsoft to start 
taking security much more seriously. I remember talking to the deputy director of NSA at the time, and he was very displeased with back orifice. So, well, the U.S. intelligence community used back orifice uh, in many places around the world. He so, might have been displeased that it was out there. Well, see, that was one of the internal arguments within CDC was that. Um, the bad guys, the really good bad guys already know how to do this and the AV companies and Microsoft and the others aren't, aren't responding to that. Mm -hmm. So, if we give the, if we gave, give the howitzers to everybody, mm -hmm. then Microsoft's going to have to do something. Why do you think the link between libertarianism and the original hacker community, and you mentioned DFF, why do you think the libertarianism link is so strong for these guys? Well, so is it fair to call them libertarians? EFF, so EFF was so two of the founders were, and one was not. Mm -hmm. uh, one was a liberal. Um, in I'd say Silicon Valley now, and uh, the cult of the dead cow. I'd say it's it's the other way. It's most of them are, are, are liberal, um, and and uh, a sizable minority are libertarian. I think that I mean those are the two the two major ideologies in Silicon Valley as well. Mm -hmm. So I think the libertarianism stuff. I think I mean really. Whichever is on top at a given time sort of tracks how people perceive technology. If mm -hmm. you think technology is going to answer all the world's problems, then I can see being more libertarian. And I think, I, and you know, that that tide has has turned in the last three years. Mm -hmm. Pretty much everybody, including the tech employees, are down on big tech. And I think that that has moved people away from libertarianism more. Tell us about your relationship with government agencies. Speaking of libertarianism. To the extent you can, they don't always seem fond of some of your stories. But what's what's the what's the deal there? Well, I mean, I think um, speaking personally, I mean, I think I'm, I'm equal an equal opportunity offender. Um, mm -hmm. I've written, you know, I, I wrote the first book that said that the Russian government was in cahoots with organized crime, um, organized criminal hackers. Um, so the NSA was like that a lot. I had to sign books to end talk. Um, <laughs> oh, you had to send books. To no, the, the, oh. somebody showed up oh, sign and asked me to, to, to inscribe a book for to end talk. That's hilarious uh, at, at NSA. And I, you know, I've certainly written my share of nasty stories about China. You know, um, I've written things that anonymous got really mad about. Um, you know, I mean, I really try and be, you know, what's the most important story, and and, mm -hmm. and try to write that story. So. I have been critical of, you know, the intelligence community's emphasis on offense over defense. I'm, I'm happy to have that argument with anybody. Mm -hmm. um, but some of my sources on that were very high-ranking intelligence officials who are sure. about the balance. Um, I've complained about the vulnerabilities equities process and, and why? The, because I didn't. It wasn't being followed the way it was. It was described to the public. Um, and this, for those of you not in this incredibly <laughs> niche area of, of interest, um, is the process by which when a software flaw comes to the intelligence community, they are supposed to thrash it out at the National Security Council and decide whether this one is so important and so good and, and so likely to be a nobus, nobody but us, that mm -hmm. it's worth hoarding and using for penetration elsewhere, or if it's something that we should, um, we the United States should warn the vendors about so mm -hmm. they can they can fix it. So that is a um that was a process whose very existence was classified until not too long ago. Mm -hmm. There is and there's been a lot of um been a lot of word games about around um how effective it is and how often it's used. But you know, among other things, the people sitting around that table, most of them have um 
penetration or offenses, their primary mission, or fighting criminals, all of which are good things. But defense, in my view, has always gotten a short shrift. And you know, an example of that is that um, post Snowden, um, the Dick Clark Five, more formally known as uh, the Commission on something or another, um, the Obama, what was it? 2014 Commission on Cybersecurity. Yeah, no, it was how. What do we do about electronic surveillance issues? Oh, yeah, that's and right. So it was Richard Clark, and it was um, uh, the guy from Georgia and the guy from Chicago. They call themselves like the five, five guys or whatever. I think of them as the Dick Clark Five. One of the recommendations was that uh, the Information Assurance uh, Directorate of the NSA, the de- defense guys of the NSA, who are the best in the world should be spun out into into something, maybe the Pentagon, maybe DHS, something so that it would not be subsumed and, and frankly corrupted as it has been by the offensive process. And instead, uh, NSA made it disappear entirely. Um, it, all the, the, the defensive mission, mission has gotten scattered at a lower level within uh, NSA and that's not going to, um, you know, that's not going to engender more trust uh, in the industry or anywhere else. What did you think about the surveillance revelations? Did those bother Snowden you? Snowden ones? Snowden's a good start, yeah. You know, if you think that you should, we should have an intelligence, uh, intelligence agencies, mm-hmm. you want them to have superpowers and you want them to use them very judiciously mm-hmm. and you want there to be oversight. None of the individual things that Snowden put out there shocked me. But again, I'm pretty deep into this and have been for a long time. You know, I wrote about the US dominant role in the zero day trade before Snowden. Um, none of none of the Snowden revelations um, shocked me. I was annoyed and continued to be annoyed that the coverage um, is 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 mostly about the capabilities. It's largely been about the capabilities um, and not about how rarely they are deployed or how often mm-hmm. they are deployed. I guess it's it's good for the public discussion and public knowledge that it's out there. But to me, it still wasn't evidence that the U.S. was doing all kinds of things wrong. Um, I, I do think it, it was it was interesting. I mean, th- there are specific things that I think are, are 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 were interesting to me. One was the the fact that the intelligence agencies hacked an American company overseas where they could do that. Um, that would be Paris, and that would be Google, and that's 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 interesting. And you know, I, I think kind of gross. I think you know, I think that was disappointing. Though maybe if I everybody thought more rigorously about it, that. It shouldn't be completely stunning, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I think that's uh, I think that's fairly telling. How's reporting changed on this topic since you started? Since when this started, there were just like three or four people who were doing it at a national level. Um, well, so um, and you were one of them. So yeah, so there are some really good reporters, and there are a lot of great stories. There are now, a lot, yeah, and right now there were like you know. Eight or ten of us that were, you know, I think that working hard and didn't screw up and were, you know, basically fair. Then there are lots of folks without very much experience, mm-hmm. you know, who who did, you sort of followed what the PR, the what the press releases right. were more or less. As this has continued to get more and more important and more central to so many things, there have been um, there's there's been a, a new batch of, of very serious journalists. Um, so there are a lot of people I read. Um, who come up with great stuff at all kinds of different outlets. Um, there are also hundreds of uh, of really pretty weak 
uh, reporters and there's a lot of noise. And so like many things in the world, it becomes about picking your filters and how do you get the good stuff? How do you know who to follow? I mean, I think the people in, you know, people who do security for a living know who to read. And uh, but re uh, regular folks probably don't. And some of the some of the ones aren't very good work for really big publications. <laughs> no comment. Uh, what are the big stories now? What are the most important stories you're looking at down the road? Because this is going to change. There are a couple things. I mean, I, I don't want to talk that much about cybersecurity, big things that I'm working on because mm -hmm. they're big things that I'm working on. And that I makes sense. Surprises. Yeah. You know, I, I like to come up with scoops. Um, but I'll tell you that I am um, I'm certainly more interested in artificial intelligence than I used to be. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's going to be a big deal. And in some ways, it's interesting for the same reason that security is interesting is that it crosses all these boundaries. Mm -hmm. uh, it's tech and it's business and it's geopolitics. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of issues of, of sort of justice and, and, um, and fairness that are mm -hmm. involved too. So that makes it interesting to me. Um, uh, and frankly, I think that um, uh, climate, uh, climate change and climate change mitigation and geoengineering, similar, you know, big picture, terrible. Um, in the meantime, really interesting. And you know, a, a tra tragedy of the commons type stuff. So I think in some ways there's a parallel between that and sort of the rolling cybersecurity catastrophe too. Uh, last question, probably a little out of order, but one of the things, I can't tell if it's the fact that I'm picking the people and so I pick people who know, uh, have an intelligence background or if the people who started doing this, at least on the East Coast, had an intelligence background. I mean, how important – you're sort of doing a different community. You're doing the hacker community and there's always been both tension and a little overlap. Yeah. Where, where's the importance of uh, intelligence in this? So I think that's one of the really interesting things here. Is it, one of the surprises in my book is that the history of hacktivism is over – intertwined with intelligence work. As I said, you know, Oxblood Ruffin is the father of hacktivism. He's the one that pushed the cult of the dead cow in that direction. Um, even people within the cult of the dead cow wondered if if Oxblood was was, was an intel agent. Um, Seems unlikely. Probably unlikely. Oxblood denies it. NSA he, really doesn't run agents. It wouldn't have been NSA. Okay. No. Uh, and he's from Canada. So uh -huh. there are other there are other there are other governments that that have a play here. But in any case, Weird. we we know that while he was pushing the hacktivism thing, he was in repeated contact with you know U.S. intelligence contractors and mm. others. So that's that's in the book. And that's quite interesting. And it's interesting that the first smart, that his first target for hacktivism was the Chinese government. Because, you know, some people in the CDC was a big tent. There's some people who worked for the U.S. government. There's some people that, you know, very rebellious, didn't, you know, hated the U.S. government. But nobody liked the government of China. And the, and the government of China was censoring the internet. So, you know, pretty much all hackers will agree that censoring the internet is a bad idea, that information should flow freely. So he made a really compelling argument that, form this alliance. On the contrary, as you know, as your cameo in the book, one of the more celebrated things that are, has been done under the, the mantle of hacktivism in the past few years have, has been these breaches of these spyware vendors like Gamma Group and Hacking Team, mm -hmm. which sell tools sometimes to shady regimes, but largely to Western police and, and so forth. I make a circumstantial case in the book that it is, it is, it is certainly plausible that that is in fact a, a Russian 
uh, operation uh, under the mantle of activism. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad, mm -hmm. but this is more complicated than people realize. I think people latch on to something anonymous or some other movement and it seems to be of the people and it's got sort of like a, a hacker zeitgeist and it's taking on the man. I'm like, man, maybe. Maybe, um, but you should also look at who benefits. You think the hacker zeitgeist is still around? I mean, it feels different to me looking at it, say, from well, 25 it, it years ago. That's, you know, there are two other things I want to say about why I wrote this book. One is that hacking has become kind of this, cybersecurity has become this clean profession, mm -hmm. uh, sort of by necessity. It grew up, right? Mm -hmm. But you can go to a nice high school, a nice college, go work for a nice company and do cybersecurity. But you're missing out on the rough and tumble mm -hmm. uh, and it can be really instructive personally. And as a result, you can wind up being sleepwalked by your company into doing things that in retrospect or with uh, with other perspective seems like maybe it wasn't a good idea. So I want people to, to think more rigorously about what they're doing, what their ethics are. Um, and the other thing is that I think the big companies now, Google, Facebook, Apple, all of them, they're in a sort of continual moral moral peril um, from lots of sides. They're making lots of tough calls now. Apple has agreed to store user data in China, making them much more liable to be surveilled. People selling uh, artificial intelligence, you know, Microsoft selling artificial intelligence to the Pentagon for offensive use. You know, and the which and I'm sort of for, but we can, we can fine, talk about that some fine. other time. I'm saying that they're interesting calls. Yeah, and Facebook continuing to be a playground for organized disinformation. These guys are new to this. They're new to these sorts of things. Um, and I think they, people who work there could learn a lot from people in security, whatever you know, flavor of security, whether they're hacker hackers or intel hackers or, uh, or corporate hackers. But all of these people are used to dealing with moral questions constantly and have been done forever. I mean, it's about you know, who has access to stuff. That's a, that's a power issue and that, that there's, a, there's a morality to that. And people, you know, people can disagree, but they should talk about it. There, sh there should be um, a realization that that ethics are really important. Other things that could happen: universities, instead of just requiring you know, a philosophy course in order to get your engineering degree, should should take it seriously. Should have case studies like the Challenger case study, where engineers, you know, in a real world situation, this is what they did, this is what they should have done, this is what they think they did wrong, uh, and the professional associations. There should be a pro bono tradition in engineering mm -hmm. as there is in law and medicine. Doctors are expected to treat people who can't pay. Lawyers are expected to devote some of their, their time to the public good. There is Zippo uh, for that among engineers. Mm -hmm. And now that we realize that tech isn't just a good in itself, there really needs to be one. Thanks for listening to Cyber from the Start. You can hear an unedited full version of my interview on the Technology Policy Program page at CSIS.org. There's some interesting stuff in those longer interviews. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next episode of Cyber from the Start. <laughs>